Welcome to the very first episode of Moral IT, where I bring ethics into the equation. From the technology we use on the tube to work every day, to those which seem to resemble only a distant sci-fi dream, you'll be hearing about some of their ethical realities, implications, and hopefully some solutions from the very people researching them. So chances are you've probably seen those eerie, unanswered happy birthday or maybe miss you posts that get put on the Facebook wall of a deceased friend or relative. The account hasn't yet been deactivated. Because the morbid reality is that dead people are leaving their data behind on the web in what essentially become their digital remains. Imagine a world where you could not only hold a memorial service to mourn a dead friend or relative just by clicking onto your social media, but you could actually keep in touch with them long after they've passed away, maybe dropping them the occasional message. This isn't the stuff of science fiction, but these are things that actually exist on the market today. Huge investments have been pumped into the digital afterlife industry, a sector whose purpose is kind of to keep the dead alive. And through online services that are fed data to create different sorts of digital remains, it seems that the days may not be as far off as we think when people are logging onto Facebook not to check their newsfeed, but to attend a sort of digital graveyard. I'm delighted to have Dr. Carl Oman connecting with me today, all the way from Sweden. He's going to talk about some of the ethical implications of this digital afterlife industry, which is seeing businesses actually commercialize the remains of their departed users. Dr. Roman has just completed his PhD at the University of Oxford's Internet Institute. He's a member of Digital Ethics Lab, and his research focuses on the ethical and political challenges that arise from this growing quantity of digital human remains. Dr. Roman, thank you so much for being here. It's really great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So let's get stuck into it. I've seen some attention-grabbing headlines claiming that the dead are going to take over Facebook, which to me conjures up kind of horror zombie film type images. I mean, could you shed some light on whether this is actually a real prospect that we could log on to Facebook and see masses of profiles of dead users alongside our living friends? Yeah, I mean, th that is actually a quite plausible reality. I also read those kind of dramatic headlines a couple of years ago. It's almost been a rumor in popular media that, well, Facebook is turning into a digital graveyard. But at least a couple of years ago, I couldn't find any reliable data that actually corroborated that claim. So a couple of years ago, a colleague of mine at the Internet Institute, David Watson, and myself, we actually got hold of some amazing data, really granular data on expected mortality rates of the 21st century. So we took that data and we matched that with the current Facebook penetration data. And we actually found that it's, it's a quite plausible scenario that in 50 years time or so, Facebook will actually have more dead than alive users on the network. But that is provided that Facebook stops growing as of now. However, if they continue to grow, the, our findings was, at least according to me, even more interesting. Because if they continue to grow, they will actually accumulate almost 5 billion deceased user profiles towards the end of the century. So yes, uh, to answer your question, it's a quite plausible reality that Facebook will eventually turn into something like a digital cemetery. Wow, I mean, 5 billion is a staggering number. But 
from a logistical perspective, surely Facebook can't store these profiles forever. It's a very current debate in the UK recently whether burial plots should be reused after 100 years or whether it's simply disrespectful to reuse a graveyard. I mean, this conversation about how long post-mortem remains, whether they're physical or digital, should be respected, seems like one that companies like Facebook might be forced to encounter. Does this give you any concerns about the ethical decisions that might have to be made about digital remains in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Really, the, the crux of this is that the business model that Facebook has adopted isn't quite built with death in mind. So, I mean, as we all know, we use Facebook for free, in quotation mark, which works because we're clicking on ads and, you know, you sell targeted advertisement to the users. But that doesn't quite work for dead people because dead people are not consumers and they don't click on ads. Yet their data will still be on the server. So whereas it may be, you know, making sense from a, a purely commercial standpoint to store living people's data on the servers, it is not necessarily commercially viable to store dead people's data on your servers. So, you know, sooner or later, Facebook is going to be faced with with a question of whether they have to delete all these profiles or if they, the alternative would be to re-commercialize them in some way, find some new way of exploiting this these data, either by, by training algorithms or training new models or simply by having descendants of Facebook users pay a fee in order to uh, have their, their profile stay on the network. Either one of these alternatives have some ethical implications attached to them, of course. So the ones that I've been looking at in particular is how Facebook will, will basically frame history. I mean, if you look 50, 60, or even 100 years down the line, the data that we produce today is going to be maybe the primary historical resource that future generations are going to use to understand life at the beginning of the 21st century. So, of course, if you have already selected only the data that was deemed profitable at the time, you're going to get a quite skewed view of life at the beginning of the 21st century. So, once again, we are at the risk of creating a history only of the rich and powerful, that is, those that actually were deemed profitable by Facebook. And I should add to this that many of us tend to think that Facebook is predominantly a kind of Western service, but that is not at all the reality. The reality is that the vast majority of these deceased profiles are going to be either South Asian or African meaning that they're not going to be as profitable in terms of selling targeted ads as the European and North American users. But nevertheless, their their data takes as much storage and as much curation and manpower. That That's certainly an ethical issue that we're going to face in, in the future as these profiles start accumulating. How do we select what is worth preserving for the future? Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. And even just thinking about it, someone like Cristiano Ronaldo or someone who has, say, 250 odd million 
Instagram followers or followers on Facebook would be a far more profitable posthumous profile for Facebook to have than your everyday user. But who's to say that they can call the shots on on whose digital remains should be allowed to be kept and should be allowed to be viewed in our history? When you first started researching what was in 2017, just this emerging digital afterlife industry, Facebook had actually started to re-commercialize in a way to allow bereaved families to convert a profile of a dead family member into a memorial site. So instead of just leaving profiles active, Facebook was already exploring other options for the business of online death. And this really was a business that was being disrupted in 2017, where startups were beginning to develop other services too that were even more interactive than these memorial sites. Could you talk us through some examples of what the digital afterlife industry actually looked like in 2017 and what these companies were offering users? Yeah, absolutely. I, I should say first that, you know, I think Facebook has done quite a good job at navigating the ethics of this area. In, in fact, they made a decision to decommercialize memorialized profiles so they won't show ads around those which is an option that works for them now because there aren't that many disease profiles. So that sort of makes sense. Of course, one may argue that they are indirectly commercializing the dead profiles in the sense that they are appropriating parts of society or parts of social life that were previously maybe managed by churches or funeral services. And it makes sense for them to invite people to do this for free and without any targeted advertisement because it makes living users stay on the network because they want to keep in touch with, with the deceased. But yes, just as you were pointing out, these various memorialization features that they have implemented, one of, one of which is a, um, a legacy contact feature where you can actually appoint another Facebook user that won't inherit your your profile, but they will be the custodian of your profile if you should die. And all of these features are basically uh, appropriated from smaller startups that provided similar services. And those have been around for, for quite some time, at least for, for the past decade. And at the beginning, maybe 2011, 12, that was a quite novel service that none of the tech giants could provide. Naturally, that's a very hard or difficult service to patent. So we have increasingly seen Facebook, Instagram, Google, and so on, uh, implement various kind of, well, posthumous or memorialization features. The problem with these smaller startups, of course, is that uh, ironically, they all they all seem to have the name or names that are relating to eternity or immortality or something like that. But the, the harsh reality is that for those companies that are not tech giants, which is the vast majority, it's very difficult to actually make a business model that is commercially viable. So most companies run out of seed capital or go bust basically when they run out of seed capital or go dormant, which is, you know, an ethical issue in itself. They're kind of promising 
their users this eternal storage service uh, that their data will remain there forever, which is kind of an you know, appealing rhetoric to many because people tend to perceive the internet as this almost metaphysical or immaterial sphere where things exist forever. But that, of course, is not the reality. I mean, our, our data is very material in nature. It is on a server somewhere and someone pays for it. And as long as the, the company that owns that server is still alive, well, you know, fine. But the moment they go out of business, well, so does your data, more or less. It is strange to think that this kind of data is stored somewhere concrete. And these issues of eternity versus, you know, a few years all comes into issues that I hope to discuss a bit later with the ethical concerns that we have with consent. Could you talk a bit more maybe about the kind of new services that were popping up around recreation or around chatbots? I think it's a really interesting area of the digital afterlife industry that people might associate more with sci-fi films or Black Mirror. And I think it would be really great to hear about them. This has been an idea that has circulated in, in fiction for quite some time, but few people actually know that it's reality. So the basic idea is that we produce so much data now and we have really good technologies to put that data to use in mining it to predict what the consumer would, would buy or click on. But of course, that data could also be used to to basically analyze the pattern of our social behavior. So the idea here that a couple of startups launched maybe six or seven years ago was that you would upload all of your, you would give them access to all of your Facebook data and all of your, your Spotify data and, and search data and so on. And they would actually build a virtual avatar, which would behave and speak like you do. And then the idea was that uh, your your descendants, or if you, you if you died, your descendants or loved ones could log on to this service and chat or even speak with the virtual ghosts of you based on your data. So we've seen a, a couple of startups like this pop up throughout the years. Some of them seem to survive better than than others. But it's certainly something that I, considering how fast AI is developing nowadays, I wouldn't be surprised if we would see more commercially viable services like this uh, emerge in the next couple of years. I think a lot of people saw the news uh, in, in Korea recently. There was um, a mother who lost a child back in 2016, I think, who left some data behind, I mean, photos, audio, and so on. And a group of computer engineers created this virtual reality where you could actually, there was an avatar of the daughter, and the mother could go into this virtual reality landscape, which was kind of shaped like this dreamy park, and an avatar of her daughter would run around and play and she could actually interact with a very realistic version of her daughter and sort of say a final goodbye to her. And in interviews, the engineers have indicated that their plan is to try and sell this as a sort of therapeutic method, uh, I guess, to hospitals. I'm not sure exactly who the 
what the market would be for that. But certainly we're seeing such initiatives today. Even just that sentence, selling for therapeutic benefits, seems kind of almost oxymoronic to me. That virtual avatar seems like it has so much amazing potential to help with the grieving process of, of bereaved people. But then again, once you once you sell something like that and once you commercialize it, all these kind of ethical concerns come up about what the companies themselves will gain from this selling process. Do you worry that specifically with these virtual kind of ghosts of dead people or with these chatbot services too, the commercial interests of companies might affect how people's data is being used and what happens to the bereaved person's initial consent when they say, yes, you know, I'd love to have a chatbot of my deceased relative. But 10 years down the line, what happens to this consent? Is it still valid? Yeah, it's a very difficult question. And, and the way I try to approach this, I pointed to a number of problems with consent. One thing, of course, is that you may sign up to such a service, give them your data, but the avatar is not very realistic because, you know, the AI isn't that good yet. And then you die and the service keeps developing and they, you know, sharpen their algorithms and maybe five or 10 years down the line, their algorithm or their, their AI is so good that it actually produces a realistic version of you. And that was not the service that you signed up for. And then, of course, you're faced with the question, okay, so this consumer once gave their consent to one product, but is this the same product? Well, you know, it's the same description. We're creating an avatar based on you, but all the actual technology behind it may have changed. That is one of the problems that you're facing with, with consent. The second thing that I would mention is that the significant ethics here lies not so much within the decisions made by the individual firms, but rather the incentives that are created by the free markets. So in one of my studies, I, I make the, the following example where you have firm A and firm B, and they're both providing one of these posthumous avatars. And firm A produces a realistic version, which takes a lot of different ethical principles and values into account, whereas the firm B goes only for profit. They don't take any ethical values into, into account. Well, which firm is going to do better on a free market? Well, naturally, firm B, because the market only sees economic value. Sure, you could say that, well, but don't consumers want a more ethical business? Well, sure, maybe that would be the case. But, you know, if ethical means more money, more profitable, well, then firm B is, of course, going to provide a more, quote, ethical service. The problem here, of course, is those that define what is desirable or ethical or good is the consumers. And the consumers are the bereaved. So are the bereaved going to prefer a more realistic version of their lost loved one? Or are they going to prefer a slightly more, you know, chatty, witty, nicer version of who they were? I mean, at the risk of being cynical, I strongly believe that, that the latter would be the preferred option. 
And you can already see this with some of the services that I've tried, that your your avatar becomes sort of a version of you, but it becomes a way more social version of you, because the more social version is more profitable. Right. That makes a lot of sense, too. And I think we have to be cynical about these sorts of things, because we have to think about the worst case scenario in order to prepare and to think about these ethical concerns. In terms of consumers themselves wanting an edited version of bereaved relative or friend, what I think is a really apt example of a scenario that could fall into another gray area of consent after someone's death. It involves the bereaved parents of LGBTQ children. Could you talk a bit about this example and and how this form of kind of editing the dead without their consent comes in? Yes, so this is an issue that has come up a lot where people who have social media profiles, such as on Facebook, and they haven't appointed a legacy contact. And then there's a conflict of, well, who get access to their profile or, you know, who gets to curate their Facebook profile. And a lot of people immediately answer, well, of course, the family. Uh, It's the right of the family to get access to their dead child's profile, for instance. Well, that sort of presumes a very 20th century model of what a family is. And it sort of assumes that the people that they trust the most are necessarily their family. And as we all know, that is certainly not the case in a lot of parts of the world, especially when it comes to queer people or LGBT people who may come from conservative backgrounds and their parents are not happy with their identities. And there have been reported cases where the family of uh, deceased people actually go onto Facebook and start erasing any evidence of them being queer to sort of reshape or edit the memory of who they were in the way that they prefer. And of course, if you take this onto the chatbot level, it's the same, it's the same dilemma or it's the, the problem gets exacerbated the more advanced or sophisticated the service is. From our conversation so far, it's kind of sprung out that there's so many possible ethical problems that could come up, um, especially as you say, as AI is getting more developed and original consent may not equal consent in 10, 20, 30 years. I'd like to get into some of the solutions you propose for these ethical problems to do with the digital afterlife industry. And I think while the COVID-19 pandemic has unfortunately forced us as a society to adapt to becoming maybe more comfortable with seeing and commemorating death online, the pace of regulation of the digital afterlife industry has just not necessarily kept up. And in your studies, you suggested that the industry should be regulated akin to how we regulate biological human remains. Could you explain a bit about how museums can help us to regulate this industry? Yes, absolutely. So to begin with, what not many people know is that dead people actually lack data protection rights. They are not part of the GDPR, the European Data Regulation Framework, which means that you can basically do whatever you want to to their data, uh, legally speaking, which is, of course, quite problematic. The question is how we justify or how we think about the status of these data. There are many philosophers that 
believe that dead people don't have any ethical rights. But I would actually beg to differ there. The model that I've been using in my research is saying that coming from my school of thought, the ethics of information, which was founded by my, my former supervisor, Luciano Floridi, in this school of thought, we tend to think about the relationship between you and your data, kind of like the relationship between you and your body. So your data is not just something that you own, like a car, but it's rather a part of you, like your hand. So what is done to your data subsequently is done also to you. This has implications for how we think about our digital remains. So if data is like a body, then our digital remains would be like an informational corpse. Then it would have a similar status, argues, uh, argue some philosophers, like uh, Patrick Stokes is one good example. It has an ethical status similar to that of, of biological remains. And you could argue that the biological human remains of a person is still constitutive of a person. It is perhaps not a soul, it doesn't have self, it's not conscious, but there are some types of harm that apply even though a person is not conscious or doesn't feel the harm of the action in question. And one of the examples is harms to a person's dignity. So, you know, you can do things to an unconscious person, which they will never find out about, but you could still say that it's a harm to their dignity in the sense that it's a fact of harm that they have been violated rather than a state of harm. And if you adopt this, this analogy of the informational corpse, as you pointed out, I mean, th there is already an industry or an area of concern that has dealt with this, which is organ trade and archaeological museums, which often display human remains in their exhibits. So trade with organs is, of course, quite strictly regulated. You can't sell it, you can't transport it over borders arbitrarily, and so on. In archaeological museums, it's a slightly similar, different approach. It's more of a self-regulatory approach. So there's something called the International Council of Museums, which has set up a sort of best practice approach uh, or a common ethical or some common, common ethical guidelines. And those guidelines, interestingly, emphasize human dignity, saying that, well, all museums that exhibit human remains must do so in accordance with what is considered to be human dignity. I think I make the, the example in, in one of my studies that even though it would be more profitable to put the Santa Claus hat on uh, Utsi the Iceman around Christmas time to attract more visitors, we wouldn't do so. You know, museum people would not consent to that simply because it is a threat or a violation to the human dignity of that individual. And my argument has been that as a first step in regulating the half-life industry, the industry should come together, I think, and uh, settle upon some common ethical guidelines adopted by any company that deals with uh, digital remains. Sorry, that was a long answer, but uh, there you got it. <laughs> no, I mean, 
that was brilliant and super clear. I really like that example of Utsi the Iceman to explain human dignity. I think it's obviously such a crucial concept, but it's also often something that's quite hard to explain. And I think, as you say, since everything that we're doing online at the moment and on social media will essentially ossify our interactions for future generations to look at historically in the years to come, we really just have to get this aspect of human dignity right when it comes to online interactions. The second idea I was really fascinated by in your approach to the digital afterlife industry was something that cropped up in the International Council of Museum Codes of Ethics, that human remains should not be consumed by the morbidly curious. What exactly does this mean when we apply it to digital remains? I mean, is there a sense that I couldn't just go click on someone's digital memorial purely because I might be intrigued by the fact that they're dead? But I had to have some sort of purpose of wanting to commemorate them or give them value in order to do so? I would like to emphasize that what this is about, ultimately, respecting someone's dignity uh, rather than displaying them for the, the morbidly curious, it comes down to the definition of, of dignity, of human dignity, which is treating someone, treating someone like an end in themselves. So fellow humans are ends in themselves. They must not be used solely as a means to another end. So of course, we always, we always use people as means to an end, but we don't reduce them to a means to an end. Now, if you have a highly commercialized business or market, then you are literally using people as a means to an end, or you're using their digital remains as a means to make profits. And you do not respect the inherent dignity and the right to be treated as an end to end in yourself. So that sort of links into this morbid curiosity where, I mean, a morbidly curious person that maybe uses someone's remains either for, for comic purposes or just to sort of exploit and, and market, that is not respecting someone's, uh, someone's dignity. I think that some of the regulatory dilemmas that we're actually seeing tech platforms face at the moment about removing hate speech or disrespectful comments on social media shows that this act of defining and respecting the term human dignity is actually really difficult when it comes to digital interactions. I mean, when people see a user reduced to a digital remain, whether it's a social media profile or an old picture on Facebook, they often forget this basic principle of human dignity and thinking about the human behind the picture. And this is maybe a principle that comes more naturally to us when we think of how to treat our biological human remains. Clearly, we have to establish a sufficient ethical framework for how we approach digital remains and death online generally. But do you have any final thoughts on what the best way to actually approach this framework might be? One thing that I always emphasize when I talk about my research is that when we talk about dignity or the, the ethical landscape of digital remains, it's very important not to take this kind of moralistic approach of what individuals should or shouldn't do, what is good grief or bad grief, but rather to, to look at the, the systemic level, asking, you know, how can we enforce regulation 
that disincentivizes the threats to dignity and the, the threats to the digital remain, and instead promotes the kind of uh, management of digital remains that we want to see. So how can we, on a systemic level, promote a plurality of values beyond the, the purely uh, economic value of, of profits, which I think summarizes a lot of my, my ethical approach, that it's a, a macro ethics uh, of, of the system rather than a micro ethics of the individual. Right, that's really helpful, Dr. Oman. I think hopefully this approach that you take with looking at macroethics as opposed to specific kind of individual incidents will come back in our next discussion of deepfake pornography, where you also talk about the different levels of moral problems and the difficult macro or micro ethical considerations we have to take. Just to wrap up what I think has been a really fascinating discussion, when Dr. Oman and I caught up earlier about some of our experiences in Oxford, he mentioned that he'd spent some time in the Pitt Rivers Museum. This is Oxford's archaeological museum. And Dr. Oman spent some time looking at a particular exhibit from the Treatment of Dead Enemies cabinet. In this exhibit are a kind of series of human remains that are hanging up, and they're specifically shrunken heads, decorated skulls, and they have sewn up lips and eye sockets. They're originally from Peru and Ecuador. They're a particularly shocking display of biological human remains, and one which Dr. Oman told me that he held in mind throughout when considering how to approach the ethical problems with digital remains. Interestingly, the Pitt Rivers Museum actually recently removed these human remains from display as part of a wider project by the museum to highlight just how many of these artifacts were appropriated as part of the British Imperial Project, and how many of these artifacts now simply reinforce racist ways of thinking about other cultures as gruesome or primitive. I think this is one of the starkest examples of how crucial this aspect of human dignity is, both for biological remains and for human remains, about never forgetting the real personhood behind the remains and treating them with respect. It also seems to me that a lot of these ethical issues about commercial exploitation of dead profiles or chatbot services or avatars will most acutely affect marginalized communities. Whether it's the LGBTQ child whose parents are able to erase aspects of their digital identity once they've passed away without taking any of their consent, or these indigenous communities whose biological remains weren't given the dignity that they were owed and hung up. We have a duty to institute laws that regulate the digital afterlife industry to protect those who are most vulnerable to its abuse. We have this duty to do this not just for our own personal concerns about our digital afterlives, but because it's our digital corpses that will collectively inform the history that we leave behind to generations to come. Dr. Oman, your research has been truly, really instrumental in laying down the ethical frameworks to allow for this sort of policy that acknowledges our duty. I really hope that maybe in some years we can look back on this podcast with some clearer regulation in place or at least some direction as to where the future of this industry is going. Thank you so much again for coming, Dr. Oman. I really look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to Moral IT, where I put ethics into the equation. Next week, I'm back with Dr. Oman talking about deep fake pornography. 
and why sometimes it's helpful to second-guess our moral intuitions. <laughs>